This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Our second reading is from Luke. It is found on page 49 of the New Testament in your Pew Bible. We will begin with the 26th verse. Luke 1:26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Let us pray. Lord, what a holy moment. Divine, human interaction. Yet it is what set course of the world right. So we pray that as we hear the word, that you would do something in us in the same way that you did when Mary received a word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I bet you remember where you were, if you were alive, June 20, 1969, 600 million people around the world sat in front of television sets looking at grainy black and white images. And what were they watching? The first manned landing on the moon. Do you remember Neil Armstrong's words when he stepped out? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. In our passage that we read from Luke, we are witnessing a far greater leap for humankind. Mary's response is the step 
It changes everything. In his book, Peculiar Treasures, Presbyterian pastor, author, Frederick Beekner describes what he imagined took place for Mary's answer. He wrote, She struck the angel Gabriel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he'd been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named, and he, what he was to be, and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. And as he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung now on the answer of a girl. In that book, the illustration on the opposite page shows Gabriel with his fingers crossed behind his back. Behind his back. What moved Mary to say, let it be to me according to your word? And what would move you to do what God might ask of you? Well, let's look first at Mary. Mary was an unlikely choice. She had unmerited favor. She was given an unimaginable message. Let's unpack that. She was an unlikely choice. Everything we know about Mary that is in the Bible could be typed up on one single page. A Sunday school teacher asked her class, what was Jesus' mother's name? And a child answered, Mary. The teacher then asked, and does anyone know the name of Jesus' father? His name was Verge. Confused, the teacher asked, and where did you get that? The kid said, well, everyone's talking about Verge and Mary. So Mary is engaged to Joseph, not Verge. Joseph is from Nazareth in Galilee. A girl was engaged around the age of 12 to 13 and married by the time she was 14. Nazareth is an unlikely place for God to choose his favored one. It would be like coming from Mule Shoe, Texas. No offense to us Texans. Nazareth never appeared in the Old Testament. It was a town about 15, uh, it was a town about 15,000, about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem, near a main caravan route. That meant that travelers, mostly merchants and Roman soldiers, were coming through. It made for a lot of inns to host these travelers, which meant a lot of corruption and immorality. It prompted Nathaniel in John's Gospel, first chapter, verse 46, to exclaim, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Mary is an unlikely choice from an unlikely place. And that's how God prefers to work. Whenever he wants to do something significant, God called 
80-year-old Moses when he was going on the other side of the desert to find a few scrappy plants for his sheep when God called him out of God called him out of that flaming bush. God called George Whitfield while he was putting himself through college by being a servitor, polishing the boots of the wealthy, serving them their meals. How do you view yourself? Are you an unlikely choice for God to use in a significant way? If you feel you are unlikely, then you are most likely to hear a voice, God's word inviting you to act in faith. The second thing is that Mary had unmerited favor. She didn't earn or deserve God's favor. Those who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church learned otherwise. Let's take a brief look at this. The first four centuries of church history, there was no no theology regarding Mary other than she was a virgin, the mother of Jesus. It was in the 5th century. It was the Council of Ephesus, 431 A.D., when it was clarified that Jesus was not a human being who became divine. He was an eternally divine being who became human. That's when it was said that Mary could be called the mother of God. It was in the Middle Ages that people began to pray to Mary. Bernard of Clairvaux, who started the Cistercians in the 11th century, wrote, If you fear the Father, go to the Son. And if you fear the Son, go to the Mother. I guess that Mary's not the kind of mother who says, just wait until your father gets home. In 1854, the church formed the doctrine that Mary was immaculately conceived, which allowed her to be considered sinless from the moment of her conception. In 1950, the Catholic Church concluded that Mary never died but was bodily assumed. Therefore, she holds a treasury of grace to which people pray. It was the Catholic monk, Martin Luther, who in opening the scripture in the 1500s said, the the Catholic Church must be called back to the scripture. What does the scripture say? And that's why he nailed the 95 questions or theses to the church door. So let us, as as Reformed people, go to the scripture. Let's look at what Gabriel says to Mary. In our Bible, the translation says, greetings. I mean, it sounds like, howdy. It's it's what Latin scholars translated into the Vulgate, hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary is not to be confused with the long forward pass in football when you are desperately behind and you have a very small chance of success. It is instead a greeting of good cheer. Be of good cheer, Mary. That's what he's saying. The angel is preparing Mary for great good news. And what's that news? 
The favor of God is upon you. Now, in the original language, we can do things, or the Greek do things that English can't do. What happened? You didn't do anything. It passed. You, you just received it, and it's never going to go away. So we could say, Mary, you have received and will continue to receive unceasing divine favor. This is the definition of grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. It comes first before there's any news flash. It's the same for us. Have you heard the favor of God upon you? He chooses you. Not because of anything you have done or earned or anything that you are. It's because of God's grace. Any other basis for God's favor is not the gospel. It's actually a religion, some form of it. Philip Yancey, he counts the time when British uh, Conference on Comparative Religions was taking place. Experts from around the world, representing all the world religions, debated what was unique about the Christian faith. Was it the incarnation, God putting on flesh, No, there are other religions that have other forms of God's appearing in human form. Was it the resurrection? No, other religions had accounts of a God returning from the dead. The debate went on until C.S. Lewis walked into the room and asked, I think it's a fun question, what's the rumpus about? Well, the rumpus was they were trying to find Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, Fries had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, is unlike anything in our human instinct or any world religion. The Buddhists have an eightfold path. The Hindu have a doctrine of karma. The Jewish have a covenant to keep, and the Muslim a code of law. Each of these offers a way to gain approval. Christianity reveals that God's love is unconditional. It must be received in order to be realized. So Mary's an unlikely choice, receiving unmerited favor. Now let's turn to Gabriel's unimaginable message. Verse 31, the angel said, You will conceive a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Gabriel's message stretches the imagination. For one, now, how can Mary conceive? without benefit of a husband. Mary knows where babies come from. It's not from a virgin. So she asks, verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? Mary's question has to do with biology. Mary is the first virgin birth skeptic in history. The angel tells her the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. 
This is like the creation story, Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit hovering over the formless earth. The cloud of God's glory overshadowing the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Do you ever wonder, like Mary, how can these things be? Gabriel's message was unimaginable because it might cost Mary her life. Mary could be accused of being an adulteress. She could be stoned to death or, more likely, taken out to a public place, have her clothes torn, her hair let loose to look like a common prostitute. She would be publicly mocked and humiliated. And what about Joseph? How would this news impact him? When God brings to your ear an unimaginable message, do you balk and say, oh, it's going to be for me? It's going to be really complicated. The angel responds to Mary in the same way he responds to us. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible to God. I asked you earlier, what moved Mary to say, let it be to me according to your word? And what would move you to do what God might ask of you? I'm going to posit from our reading in Isaiah 11 that it's the ravishing vision of the God who comes. Isaiah 11. Isaiah now was a prophet of the Most High God. He was in the 8th century. Most of the prophecies that are recorded from the 8th centuries came to pass in the 1st century, in the coming. Came to pass in the 1st century, in the coming of Jesus Christ. And those that have not yet occurred will happen. Jesus himself picks up on this. Revelation, the Apostle John, sees visions of what will be. So we are in a tried and true prophecy when we look at Isaiah 11. Here again, verse 1. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse. In other words, it's an unlikely beginning. When it looks hopeless, the tree's been chopped down. Except there was a promise from God. God promised to King David to put an heir on his throne who would have a kingdom that never ended. And yet, shortly after Isaiah makes this prophecy, Jerusalem falls. The survivors go off into X2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit gives him wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These are desirable qualities for a leader. He will possess an unshakable commitment to do what the Lord wants. And look at the effects of this word. It says that he, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now that is not halitosis. It is not bad breath that does this. It is truth. And truth has a way of cutting people to the quick, making them fall over. Any falsehood will fall over. And this same word we, we hear in verses 6 through 9 transforms 
it blesses the entire creation. As forms, it blesses the entire creation. I love this. Everyone, everything will be safe. The big bad wolf is not going to be euthanized nor defanged, but will be transformed in its character to live contentedly with the lamb as its best buddy. The leopard will not stalk or pounce anymore, but will lie content with a kid, a young goat. A little child shall lead safely a bear, a lion, a leopard, playing over the hole of an asp, which stings like fire, and will un be unharmed in putting its hand over the snake's den. Is this your vision of what is ahead? The word of the Lord will come to pass. Like Mary, we may ask, how can these things be? Isaiah tells us. It's through the unlikely stump of Jesse, the promised son of David. Let's return now to Mary. Her response to the angel Gabriel. Verse 38. Mary said, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, she's saying, let it be to me as you've said. Here I am. This is the best definition of faith in the Bible. Faith allows God's word to become a reality in our lives so that what God wills happens on earth as it is in heaven. Throughout art, history, we see the painters depicting Mary conceiving through a shaft of light that penetrates into her ear. She hears the word. She believes it. And she receives. This is the word that comes. It's one act of faith by a 12-year-old girl in Nazareth that is the bridge between the promise of God and its manifestation. That's what faith does. Is God nudging you to do something? Is God getting your attention, calling you to act in faith? You can turn away. You can act as though you're stone deaf and you're hard-hearted, or you can respond like Mary and say, let it be to me according to your word. I close with this. Corey Timboom was speaking in a church when she recognized a man in a gray overcoat. He was a guard in the concentration camp where she and her sister were during World War II. Memories of the camp came back to her with a rush came back to her with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past the man. Now this former guard was in front of her, and he thrust his hand out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since her release that Corey had been face-to-face -face with one of her captors. She froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips. Again, the hand went out. 
Will you forgive me? You forgive me. Corey stood there. She couldn't do it. Her sister had died in that place. Hours seemed to pass as the man stood there with his hand held out, and Corey wrestled with the most difficult thing she'd ever had to do. Was this her moment to believe, like Mary, the message that God had given? Was this the time to act in faith when everything in her wanted to scream and run? Corey prayed silently. Jesus, help me. I can't lift my hand. I can. I can lift my hand, but you will have to supply the feeling. And so mechanically, she thrust her hand into his. And as she did, she said it felt like a current to their joined hands. And then a healing warmth seemed to flood her whole being, bringing tears to her eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, they grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. This is a vision of Isaiah 11. Manifest the lion and the lamb at peace. What act of faith is God calling you to make? Will you take that step? Let us pray. Or do you know how to help us hear because you made our ears. You made us spiritual beings. And so we pray that whatever it is that you've laid on our hearts, beings, and so we pray that whatever it is that you've laid on our hearts, you would now give us, like Corey, the power to act on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.